Lord, help us to seek the truth, come whence it may, cost what it will. Amen. This sermon is entitled, Forgiveness, Why, What, and How. There are many good answers to the question, why forgive? Psychologist Fred Luskin writes, Forgiveness training has been shown to reduce depression, increase hopefulness, decrease anger, improve spiritual connection, and increase self-confidence. Then there's the teaching often attributed to Mahatma Gandhi that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Annie Lamott says it this way, they say we are punished not for the sin but by the sin and I began to feel punished by my unwillingness to forgive. And then in their beautiful text, The Book of Forgiving, Archbishop Desmond and Mpo Tutu write of Ubuntu, that powerful South African concept that I am because you are. My existence depends on yours. My well-being depends on your well-being. And so drawing on the remarkable work of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they point out that we really only have two options when we have been wronged. We can engage the cycle of violence, retribution, restitution, or we can forgive. When we acknowledge our shared humanity, empathy and compassion call us to forgiveness. We truly are tied together in a single garment of destiny, as Dr. King has it, and we either wreck or repair that garment after a wrong. Those are the only two choices. The Tutus write powerfully of this work, and their ultimate answer to the question, why forgive, is the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. In today's gospel, he could not be more clear. He calls us to unlimited forgiveness. So let's dive in. This teaching from Matthew 18 follows directly from last week, by which I mean it is literally the next verse. Verse 21 starts this week, verse 20 ended last week. And when a wrong occurs, we are to confront that wrong in an honest, loving conversation. Last week, Jesus has advice for ways to engage the community if needed. Basically, I read into that, don't give up, keep trying, if need be, bring some friends. And this week poses the question by Jesus, by Peter, okay, fine, I admit that we should forgive, but how many times? And don't you just love Peter? If you look up the word impulsive in some biblical dictionary, you will find a picture of Peter doing exactly what he does today, venting the first thought to cross his mind and probably acting on it. And so he chooses a symbolically large number. Seven times, that must be enough, right? And Jesus plays this game right back with him with a little bit of witty repartee and says even more than that. Seventy times seven. I see your improbably large seven and raise you an improbably even larger amount. Seventy, seventy sevens. The most times. The biggest number you can imagine. And so based on Jesus' teaching, the tutus write that there is no person beyond forgiving. There is no unforgivable act. 
There is no person beyond forgiving. There is no unforgivable act. Brian Stevenson puts it this way, None of us deserve to be known for the worst thing we have ever done. And then we have this difficult parable with the king and his servants. And I'm choosing the word servants over slave because it comes from the Greek word doulos. And though enslavement was a part of the ancient Near East, the way they practiced it was so different from the way it was practiced in the American South that I think servant is a more effective translation for us. So the servant is badly in debt, owing the king 10,000 talents. And 10,000 is, again, the largest numerical value. And a talent is the largest monetary unit in this world, in in the servant's world. So in today's telling, imagine the biggest number at hand. Call it a billion dollars, a ridiculous sum you would never be able to repay. He is threatened with the sale of his family, certainly one of the most traumatic and horrifying aspects of enslavement. He begs time to pay back his debt, and notice that Jesus says his debts are forgiven. So one way to understand forgiveness is that debt is no longer owed. There are others, and that's a powerful image, that debt is no longer owed. The enormous account has been zeroed out. But then this servant, fresh off a heart-pounding and traumatic encounter with misery and disaster from having his family sold, meets another servant who owes a tiny sum. Jesus is here playing with math to get our attention. A hundred denarii versus 10,000 talents. A hundred denarii is probably just a few months' wages for a worker. And still, the forgiven servant is not forgiven. And so what follows is a strident, if problematic, reflection that those who have been forgiven are also called to forgive. If we do otherwise, we perpetuate the cycle of violence and retribution. And so when we encounter a difficult text like this one, I think we're invited to wrestle with it like Jacob does with the angel in Genesis, and then to hold it up in light of the full biblical witness. I think Jesus' ministry and the God he defines by love, can only be understood as committed to the liberation of all people and the forgiveness of all people in all things. Because if God in Christ forgives those who crucify him, I cannot imagine anything that is beyond God's capacity to forgive. So there are many answers to the question, why forgive? The simplest one is, Jesus says to forgive. Everybody all the time, for everything. It's incredibly difficult, but it's not complicated. So what is forgiveness? As I was preparing this sermon, and Jenny and I had a lot of prayerful conversation about this, I felt like this should be a slam dunk. For example, raise your hand if you're opposed to forgiveness. It turns out it's really dense and really complicated. I said, Jenny, there's way too much to put into a sermon. And then you said, well, there's way too much to put into a five-week class. So I felt seen. It turns out this simple concept is really dense and really complicated and really hard. And that's why I'm so glad there's a five-week class to explore it that Jenny and Naomi will lead beginning after this service. Brene Brown calls forgiveness the ultimate act of love, writing, if you can find it in yourself to forgive, then you are no longer chained to the perpetrator. You can move on, and you can also help the perpetrator to become a better person, too. 
then the tutus helpfully define what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not justice subverted. Accountability still plays a role. Forgiveness is not weakness. It's one of the strongest, bravest things you can do. Forgiveness is not forgetting. If it were, we would just move on. Instead, we have to tell the truth as part of the first step. Forgiveness is not easy. And the tutus help us understand the cycle of forgiveness by contrasting it with the cycle of retribution. One cycle leaves the whole world blind, stabbing at eyes. The other cycle acknowledges our shared humanity who choose to move on and forgive because it is better for us, but also because it's better for our community. The tutus talk of release, renewal, freedom, and deep inner peace. There's talk of trauma-informed care that helps us to see the humanity even in those who have committed heinous deeds. So what is forgiveness? It is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice to renew or release a relationship after a wrong. It means that we release to God's healing grace whatever is not resolved, even and especially if no apology or retribution is ever made, we still forgive. We acknowledge our role in the drama. There's another sermon entirely in the act of apologizing, atoning, making amends for our wrongs. Suffice it for now to say that that is also part of the forgiveness cycle. And there are times when we are called to do perhaps the hardest thing, to forgive ourselves. The wisdom of a 12-step group might call this a fierce moral inventory. A fierce moral inventory where we seek to be true to ourselves. We are called to make amends as long as doing so will not cause greater harm. And in today's gospel, the forgiven servant still has forgiving to do. We all have a role to play on both sides of the ledger. So there's the why and the what. How? How do we forgive? I think Archbishop Desmond and Impo Tutu give us a great strategy. They call it the fourfold path of forgiveness. First, the victim tells their story, if possible, to the perpetrator, with unvarnished truth. No cross-examinations, no defensiveness. Simply confront the wrong, just as Jesus counsels us to do in last week's gospel. And you know, the hard thing about it is this wrong cannot be undone. History cannot be rewritten. What's done has been done. What is undone has been undone. Let it be. We acknowledge that our own integrity will accept no excuses, no bending of the truth, no slanting of the rhyme. What happened? Name it. Be honest. Second, name the hurt. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission found great power in this step with thousands of people doing truth and reconciliation about some horrific deeds with great precision, often perpetrator and victim in the same room speaking to each other, looking into each other's eyes. Sometimes the surviving members of a victim's family talking to those who had killed a child or a daughter or a husband, and still they found truth and reconciliation. It creates the possibility of empathy and compassion. So you might say, I felt betrayed by what you said about me. I thought we were friends. I couldn't believe you broke my trust. 
I was furious, but I was also really sad because I felt like I lost a friend. This second step matters because if we can acknowledge the pain that has been caused, then it's possible to experience empathy, compassion, connection. And this leads to the vital third step. We grant forgiveness because we see our shared humanity. Often, perpetrators of crimes were themselves the victims of poverty, abuse, and violence. I think about Danilo Cavalcante, the gentleman who escaped prison in Pennsylvania and was on the run for 13 days. And though he has to accept accountability for his crimes, I also was really moved by the interview with his mom that was in the New York Times, where they both grew up in abject poverty, stealing just to get food as little kids. And then all the ways he was taught all the way through, ways to survive in a cruel and broken world. And I wonder what, how his story would have been different if he had had enough food and clean water and a safe place to sleep and a place to go to school. Can we see the shared humanity in a little boy who's scared and angry and hurt all those years ago in Brazil, who never learned to trust, but whose mother loves him deeply and hopes and hoped that he would live? Fourth, we renew or we release the relationship. In a perfect world, renewal becomes possible, but sometimes it is only possible to let go and to let God, which is to say that sometimes the wisest course of action is simply to release the relationship to God's healing, to move on with compassion, to know that we will never be in a relationship with that person again, and yet we forgive, and yet we release. The tutu's right of carrying an old stone in your non-dominant hand for six hours someday. This is one of their prayer exercises. Imagine carrying this stone all morning for six hours, and maybe you can't brush your teeth just right. Maybe you can't type your emails, or maybe you can't play piano, or whatever it is you're trying to do, because this stone is in your way. And then they, they say, after six hours, imagine dropping it into a lake. And now suddenly you have your hand back, and now suddenly you have your whole self back. And they say, what if it would be possible to release something like dropping a stone into a lake, having carried it for so long? There are so many compelling stories of the power of forgiveness. I want to tell you about Frere Roger, Brother Roger, in France. In 1940, he is living in occupied France. The Nazis are taking over part of France. And his mom and his grandma were involved in taking care of refugees during World War I. So he learned about this coming up as a child, which is why it's so important to be a community of forgiveness that practices and teaches forgiveness, even to the youngest in our midst. He gets a bike, he, drives, he, he rides just to the other side of the border of now non-occupied France in the southwest called Burgundy. And he picks up enough money to buy a house in an old stone church that's falling apart at the seams in a town you've never heard of called Teze. And there he shelters Jewish and, and Christian people who are trying to run from occupied France. And after the war, when France and Germany and also occupied and non-occupied France are absolutely at odds because they were shooting at each other, he feels called by God to create this community of reconciliation. So they've got this old crumbling stone church in the middle of a town you never heard of, and they don't know what to do except they feel called to be part of forgiveness and reconciliation. So what do they do? They get this composer, somebody knew a guy, a guy named Jacques Bertier, and he writes these tiny little songs, like on the back of napkins, you know, like, bless the Lord my soul. And bless God's holy name. 
Bless the Lord, my soul, who leads me into life. And they just start singing these silly little eight-bar songs over and over and over and over. And they get bored and they add a bass line. And they add a tenor line and they add an alto line because what else are you going to do? And pretty soon in this old crumbling church, a couple other monks and later on a couple other nuns come. They, they form an, an order. And you want to talk about a metaphor for forgiveness. Try singing in four-part harmony with someone you used to be shooting at. And it grows and it grows and they add more songs to the repertoire and more nuns, monks and more nuns join them. And pretty soon people from nearby say, you've got to go hear these guys sing these beautiful ancient little songs. And sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not so great. And actually recorded with them and the new ones are not so great. But they actually had a chance to just explore what this might look like and they just sing together over and over and over and it grows. And they become called to build reconciliation, not just with the French and the Germans and the people who had been in occupied and non-occupied France, but with the English and the Spanish and the Italians. And it grows into the North Africans and all across Europe, people are joining this religious order. And non-monks and non-nuns, just young folks, start coming to hear them sing and they start learning the songs and they start lighting candles and pretty soon they build this chapel of the reconciliation because this old 900-year-old church will not fit all the people that are coming to sing these songs. And it grows and it grows to the point where now in the summer there are as many as 10,000 people, mostly young, in a giant church that has garage doors that roll up and roll down so they can add more people as they need to. They can't fit them in all the time. They do gatherings all across Europe and in some cases in North America singing these beautiful, simple songs in four-part harmony, lighting candles and imagining a world where forgiveness is the order of the day. And you might think to yourself, well, there's a happy ending to a hard story. Except Brother Roger gets stabbed in the middle of church in 2005. Tragically, by a person who had mental health issues, who was not coherent. And this was in the middle of the summer and so there were literally thousands of people and so they had to evacuate the church and try and get him out and sadly he died. This is a man who wrote with and journeyed with Mother Teresa, was part of reconciliation in South Africa, Northern Ireland. He was a, an icon of world peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. And he was stabbed in the middle of church. And so the monks didn't know what to do except to get everybody back together again an hour later. They clean up the church, they get everybody back in, they drive around camp, it's everyone coming back to church, it's almost midnight now in 2005. And they sing these songs again, over and over again. And then the person who had been appointed to be Brother Roger's successor was supposed to give a sermon, and and what do you say? I don't even know what to say except, with Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive her, for she knew not what she did. And they did. And there was accountability, and there was a remaking of, of... her life. She's no longer walking the streets, but she has, she continues to live. And they are in reconciling relationship with her to the extent that that's possible. What I find so compelling about that story is they were practicing forgiveness in their community. So when the rubber really hit the road in the moment of great tragedy and crisis and not knowing what to do, all they knew to do was what they had practiced in community. To forgive and to be forgiven And to say with Jesus, God forgive her, she didn't know what she was doing. So I wonder if in your life, if there are relationships that are ripe for forgiveness. Maybe for atoning, apologizing. 
maybe for releasing, maybe for renewal. But I wonder in what ways God might be calling you and me to be instruments of forgiving, reconciling, healing love in a world, in our own personal lives, in our community, in our neighborhood, in a world that is so used to an eye for an eye making the whole world blind. What if we could say with Jesus, God forgive them, God help me to forgive them, to release like a stone falling into a river. And then that same river just goes water under the bridge and suddenly it's gone. By the power of God's grace, it is released like water under the bridge. Bless the Lord, my soul, and bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, who leads us into life. Amen.